I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, ask anyone why they like to run, and most will say it's because of health benefits like burning calories, or that it's a great way to unwind and enjoy some fresh air. But the practice of running, especially long distances, can also open up the door to healing. There was something profoundly healing about a practice that by definition entailed letting go of doubts and turning towards the lived experience right now. And later, how running becomes a kind of dreaming. What happens to the brain during 100 or 200 mile races? The trance state that one enters in ultramarathons is where the the thinking mind falls silent and becomes freed up to move in, in any direction it wants to. Ultra runner and psychologist J.M. Thompson on trauma, suicide, and the healing power of running, all ahead on Life Examined. For the majority of Americans, the idea of running is not necessarily that appealing. From the outside, it looks kind of monotonous and exhausting. But for some, a run is just the perfect way to keep fit and de-stress. So what makes a runner want to push themselves to longer distances? What drives a runner to endure the extreme physical and mental challenge of running, say, 100 or 200 miles? For J.M. Thompson, running offered a pathway to healing and eventual recovery. His introduction to running first happened on a rooftop of a San Francisco psychiatric hospital. Incarcerated for his own safety after a suicide attempt, he was severely depressed. Running, Thompson discovered, quieted his mind— and allowed him to break free from the endless cycle of negative thoughts. Thompson continued to push his limits, running extreme distances, practicing as a clinical psychologist, and writing a new book called Running is a Kind of Dreaming, a memoir. And a quick disclaimer, this show does openly discuss mental illness and suicidality. And while these are certainly difficult subjects to talk about, we feel it's important to share these stories in an honest and destigmatizing way. Jason Thompson, thanks for joining us for the full hour on Life Examined. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. It's really a pleasure to be here today. I want to hear a little bit about the world in which you grew up, um, because as you became a young man, life would get increasingly harder for you and, and with a number of, of fairly severe setbacks. Um, but, but tell me about where, where you're from and, and how that would eventually take you to, to some some pretty spectacular moments in your life. Well, yes. So things things got challenging really in my, my early 30s um, uh, in, in particular. But where I started out was growing up in, in England in the 1970s and 1980s uh, as the child of a mother and father who had emigrated to the mainland of uh, the United Kingdom from... Northern Ireland at the peak of that country's centuries-long sectarian war. My my parents were actually on kind of either side of that uh, of that sectarian divide. My father Protestant, my mother Catholic. So they had left Ireland, moved to England, and in, you know, kind of search of a more peaceful, stable life. And uh, we're we're doing pretty well. My my experience when I was was very little, you know, early the earliest memories through to uh, kind of ten ish, was of really kind of two levels of experience. Um, on on the one hand, I had this sense of 
the the four of us, me, my my younger brother, I call Sebastian in, in the book, um, and my mother and father, in this sort of charmed, enchanted world of our house and this uh, garden that seemed sort of immense. Uh, it was a third of an acre. It seemed like a whole whole universe in a way. Um, and the cycle of uh, the seasons and this sort of cozy kind of uh, enclosed feeling there. On This on the one hand. And then on the other hand, this sense of kind of impending catastrophe um, that as a child, you know, eight, nine, ten, I I really organized in my, you know, childlike mind as the sense of the disaster that I thought was coming on the outside. This was the, the era of the Cold War, the United States at loggerheads with the Soviet Union, the possibility of global nuclear conflict. I had read about that. I understood that that was a real threat. So that was my child, my childhood psyche uh, making sense of what was occurring. What in reality was occurring, and of course I didn't figure this out until much, much, much later, decades later really, is that what was actually occurring though was, were cracks much closer to, to home uh, in my mother's psyche, the, uh, the emergence really of a, of a period of, of psychosis that, that kind of unfolded in my teens, although there were some very, very early uh, glimpses of this, I, I, I sensed that were happening earlier. And so that was really where I started out, is, is probably in the way that I think children are aware of absolutely everything, even if they don't have the concepts or words or the way of, of making sense of, of their reality. My sense is that I was aware of this uh, in, kind of impending catastrophe. I needed to organize it as a threat on the outside because one, I was eight, nine, ten. I had no way of making sense of psychosis, mental illness, anything like that. No, uh, no, no concepts at all. But also, I suspect having you know worked now as a clinician for many years with with children in all kinds of very difficult situations. In some ways, it occurs to me now that the awareness that the catastrophe was was so close at home that 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 might have actually been even harder to bear than the thought of the disaster on the outside. So that's how I started out. Uh, you know, years ago, and you know, many many challenges followed from from that. But uh, the initial uh, challenge was something like that. Right, and and in the book, you talk about how your mother's psychosis and her mental illness began to intensify as the years went on. I wonder when did you personally begin to sense that there was perhaps some form of a mental disorder or illness or depression beginning to rise up within you? So for, for a long time, until I was about 15, I had this sense that in, I was coping pretty well through all of this, that, uh, so to speak, the catastrophe still remained somehow on the outside. And what I was, there was, was a sort of this kind of fortress uh, I, I built a kind of mental fortress uh, through becoming book smart and, and quite kind of able to withstand um, difficult feelings uh, where it seemed as if the, all the dangers 
were still on the outside. I, I had, a, you know, I had, uh, parents who were, who were coping with these very difficult experiences, but I, that was not, it was, that was them, not me. Everything shifted when I was about 15 uh, with another, uh, you know, very uh, powerful experience of humiliation with my mother after some kind of mediocre exam results she wasn't happy with. And I, I sort of imploded in, in this, this moment one day in August of 1986 in the face of her rage for about, and for about two weeks entered, you know, what, what I would now be able to very easily diagnose in others or, or indeed myself as a major depressive episode. Oh, it was very, very intense, but, you know, I was completely uh, kind of immobilized with feelings of regret, remorse, shame, humiliation, extreme sadness, and, and a sort of bodily kind of heaviness. I didn't have words for this. I, you know, certainly even the word depression, I, I, I am sure I'd heard that word, but that was not my idea of what, what depression was. And, you know, in the, I came out of that after about two weeks um, with this sense, oh, that whatever happened there was, was this sort of, you know, it was like a trap door had kind of opened in my mind and whoever I was had fallen into it. And whatever that, whatever that was, I had to do absolutely everything in my power to ensure I never re-experienced. And, you know, the next, I'd say, 15 years from age, say, 15, 16 to age 30, uh, I, 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 I felt as if I was engaged in this kind of battle where I was aware of the, the kind of pull of these, uh, uh, that implosive force of, of depression. And I was aware of, of kind of this, this sort of fortress I was building in my, my mind by through, you know, uh, whether through, uh, you know, book smarts, uh, uh, you know, various forms of intellectual accomplishment, always moving forward in, in life in various ways, uh, academically or professionally, that, that somehow kept the, 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 the kind of the nightmare at bay. And that continued until my early 30s when whatever that, you know, strategy had been, uh, you know, it, it kind of stopped, stopped working. Yeah, tell us a little bit about this period. I know that uh, you had moved to San Francisco. Uh, you had met a woman. You were married. I know the two of you are still married. You have kids together. But it was in that period in your 30s that y you really felt things were taking a severe turn for the worse. I began to notice that some of these depressive feelings and, and what I then understood as anxiety wasn't wasn't a, wasn't something I was able to regulate in the same way. The the feelings were more intense, more more persistent, and the strategies that until that point I had been able to use somewhat effectively to, to keep to keep those feelings at bay stopped working. I was um, feeling depressed most of the day, every day, and afraid most of the day, every day. And then the very significant shift. In, you know, it strikes me now in hindsight is I stopped really being able to sleep. You know, into this period where I was sleeping probably an hour or so a night, and that went on for quite a long time. For anyone who has ever experienced this sort of combination of you know intense negative feeling, uh, acute stress, but without the capacity to rest and recover and have the kind of restoration that occurs from sleeping. 
it tends to grind you down r rather quickly. Um, you know, after even a few months of this, what what I became aware of in a in a in a very frightening and and uh, and spontaneous way is is the emergence of of suicidal thoughts. Uh, the 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 they the, these these were unbidden. They came. They seemed to sort of in some ways not not be my thoughts. They seemed to be the kind of spontaneous solution uh, to to a to a quote unquote problem of extreme pain and and the and the desire for its alleviation and the, and the thought was well you know there is actually a way to stop this and, and it's and it's it's not to be here anymore and, and then you know that continued for for a uh, for quite a long time and the thoughts became more and more insistent and until it was really all I was thinking of really all the time and and, and then you know then I ended up in in hospital and you know in, in the book I go into in a, a lot of detail about precisely that um, sort of journey into the underworld so to speak of uh, of crossing the threshold from the quote-unquote ordinary world into this liminal space where I, I had really kind of lost touch with who I was and any hope of ever feeling any better. Hmm. Your recovery, I'm sure, had had many different components, but you do highlight very, uh, very heavily in this book the power of returning to your body as a runner. And this is something that fascinates me as as a triathlete, as an endurance athlete, but having, of course, not been through what you have, but begin to talk a bit about how running worked its way into your healing process. I had a moment when I was in the psychiatric hospital in San Francisco in the spring of 2005 after a very serious suicide attempt when one day the staff led myself and my fellow patients to the rooftop basketball court at the top of the hospital for some fresh air we were standing around some of us were shooting hoops some people were, were sitting down enjoying the, the sunshine and, and the view of um, the mountain and ocean in the distance i had a sense that any moment now they're going to take us all back downstairs into the locked ward where there's there are activities, but you are, you know, you are confined, you are incarcerated for your own safety. And that was, in certainly my case, necessary at the time. But there was a feeling of confinement and restriction. And really, in, in, in an impulse, I sensed what I needed to do in that moment was, was start to run. And that's what I did. I started to sprint back and forth on the basketball court and you know you have to remember that I, I had been in this this state of the most acute psychological pain for many months in which one defining characteristic was absolutely being consumed with and identified with very repetitive negative thoughts that went round and round and round thoughts about the past why can't I make sense of it? Thoughts about me, why am I no good, etc., etc. It went round and round and round uh, w without cessation. 
to to initiate a different kind of cycling, so to speak, moving my legs one foot after the other, moving from one side of the court to the other, focusing simply on movement. I had a, I had a very brief uh, glimpse in that instant of a of a different way of being, in which the the thinking mind fell silent, even for a moment, and whatever I was was not that. It was my left leg moving now, my right look, left right, left right, left right, feeling a little warm, feeling beads of sweat on my brow. There was a very clear sense in that moment that I am more than my thoughts. I am more than this confused mass of very painful circular negative thoughts. I am a body, a body in the world that can move forward. Uh, and, and, and more than that, this, this whole other dimension of being an embodied creature is, is in some ways, that's... That's the headline. That's the main story. The, 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 the circular thoughts are a, uh, are a distraction. This was a, a, a fleeting moment. Uh, I, I have to say, I probably was experiencing this for seconds. I went back downstairs and was depressed again and stayed depressed. But over time, you know, as I started to, to, to run a little further, I ran in the neighborhood, 20 minutes, it ran down on the beach very early in the morning, it was still dark, the stars were out, I could hear the crash of the surf, I could feel the cold wind in my face, I could smell the burnt firewood and, and kelp on the beach, I, I could feel the sensation of choosing my own direction forward and the, the feeling of the predictable, uh, comforting rhythm of moving one, foot in fo- in f- moving one foot at a time forward and being sort of held in that uh, gentle motion under my own volition which in turn induced this sense, you know, I can, I can pick a direction, I can do this. All of which felt radically different from the, the very heady intellectual uh, place I, I had been when, when I was depressed. So running, running, was a, a, the beginning, running was the beginning of a different way of being that, that, that led, me, led me out of, of where I'd been suffering. There was so much of what you said there that really stuck with me. This this idea of of I am more than my thoughts, which is I think something that so many people struggle with, and this idea of of moving from that into this embodied space, um, into into a different type of rhythm, into a new type of control over over the future, over the present. There's so much that seems so healing about that for someone that was in such a, a tragic state. Well, yes, the the experience that I had, and certainly now after ten years of working as a therapist, I see in so many people coping with depression or trauma or addiction, is to be in this state, according to my own experience now, where 
certainly in the aftermath of feeling suicidal, attempting suicide, becoming addicted to cocaine, uh, feeling very ashamed and frightened and alone, not knowing where the path forward in my life lay for me. There was something profoundly healing about an, a practice that by definition entailed letting go of the doubts in a broader sense about who I was or where I'd come from or was I good enough and turning towards the, the lived experience right now. I am running right now and this is actually happening. And if I ran a mile, I knew I'd run a mile and it didn't matter what anyone else thought. I had done it, I could feel it in my bones, so to speak. And then as I continued to run, one mile became five miles, became 13 miles, became 26 miles, became 30 miles and on and on and on. The, the, the realization, when I say realization, it is, it's an embodied realization, right? It's the sense, not a thought, I, I can do things. It's the awareness that these, these events are actually occurring. What that, what that led to was in a very profound embodied sense, the knowledge that I could accomplish things, that uh, that was a sort of basic uh, confidence and goodness that I could turn towards that, that not only uh, provided this very, very direct and pragmatic way of uh, developing more, more capacity as a runner, but also which then evoked questions about, well, what, what else might I be able to do? It is perhaps, perhaps everything is in fact like this. Perhaps everything, if you break it down into its component parts, is a series of steps you accomplish one step at a time. You may not be able to see the other side of the mountain, but if you turn towards it and keep going, you will indeed get there. So, so running ended up becoming this, this very sort of visceral, embodied, way of feeling feeling good about myself and with with mental illness or disorders like depression anxiety post-traumatic stress disorder you know what we see of course is the mind is anywhere but in the present it's lodged in the past or it's moving into an unknown scary future and what you're talking about is a reminder that running physical movement is perhaps one of the few reliable things that has to keep us in the present moment. Running in particular, my experience of this was that it was especially useful in that sense, and even more so trail running. And the, and the reason is this, when you are spinning out and thinking about a million things, and as you say, uh, preoccupied with thoughts about the past or the future, uh, and and you then find yourself moving forward, uh, running in a in an environment where you you need to make sure that your feet are landing in in the right place. Now the t- trail is turning this way. Now the trail is turning that way. Oh look, there's a bird. 
there's a bunny, look at the beautiful sky, smell the eucalyptus. While all of this is happening, there is this uh, rhythmic interruption of the, the internal narrative that pulls you inside your own thoughts and pulls those thoughts into what is not here, what, what happened yesterday or 20 years ago or what might be happening tomorrow. You, you are necessarily pulled into the, the sensory motor task of staying upright, not falling over, being able to, to navigate the, the physical environment. This, 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 there's something I'm convinced about the, the interruption of that ruminative thought process that uh, running and, and trail running in particular is, is there may be other ex- forms of exercise too, rock climbing, uh, surfing, which are particularly useful in terms of uh, providing this very kind of visceral way of, of pulling you out of the, the, the conceptual and the, 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 the thinking mind into the, the, the sensory reality of what is actually occurring now. J.M. Thompson is the author of Running is a Kind of Dreaming. He'll join us for part two of the conversation in which we discuss the trance-like state of enduring ultramarathons. This is Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll now continue my conversation with J.M. Thompson. He's a clinical psychologist, ultra runner, and author. Earlier, Thompson described the severity and shame of his depression and how a suicide attempt landed him in a psychiatric hospital where he discovered the thing that may have saved his life, running. We'll jump back in as I ask him about this and the mysterious title of his new book, which is called Running is a Kind of Dreaming. My experience... Over time, as I continued to develop as a runner and developed from running 10, 15 miles into running ultramarathons. So these are races any longer than a standard marathon distance of 26.2 miles. The, the standard distances tend to be 50 kilometers, 31 miles, 50 miles, 100 miles. Once I, I'd begun to experiment with these really long distances where rather than running for a couple of hours or three hours, you're running for 24 hours, 30 hours, sometimes even longer. So running all day, all through the night, sometimes well into the next day. Is that The running does change in some, some physiologically and psychologically important ways. The, the, you know, the brain is a very smart organ that's developed over millions of years, uh, primarily with, with one uh, primary function in mind, which is to, to, to survive, right? Keep us alive. So about five hours into a run, the, the brain, I think this is how it happens, the brain senses essentially some sort of 
catastrophe occurring. Oh, you know, you, we're, we're, we're going a really long way here. And this person seems to be intent on, on not stopping. So in terms of managing the finite resources available to the brain, the, the blood supply to the uh, frontal cortex tends to shut down to some extent. This phenomenon, and the psychologist Arnie Dietrich coined, is, is called transient hyperfrontality, which means brief reduction in the, the functionality of the prefrontal cortex. That state in which the prefrontal cortex, the thinking, remembering, planning part of the brain-mind, it goes offline or, or, or certainly uh, gets less active, is, a, is, is very much akin to a dream state. Of course, you are awake. So the, the trance state that one enters in ultramarathons, and, 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 I, and I, I've certainly encountered other ultra runners who've, who've discussed something similar, is something like this waking trance where the, the thinking mind uh, falls silent and rather like the way that in the early days of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud talked about free association, the, the mind becomes um, freed up to move in, in any direction it wants to. Uh, my experience of this was almost the entire contents of consciousness would, would bubble up into awareness, thoughts of the past, memories of very difficult experiences, memories of uh, very happy experiences, but all held with and in some ways synthesized with the, the present moment experiences of being a body moving through the natural world. And then the sense of all of this happening all at once. So the inside and the outside, the mind and the natural world, the, 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 the free movement of, of thoughts and memories, the sights and sounds of being in the trail in the forest, all of this converging into this moving, waking dream. Uh, so that's part of it. The other part is, you know, probably we can all, runners and non-runners alike, identify with the experience of wrestling with some difficult problem. Having someone tell you, you know, why don't you sleep on it? Uh, following that advice, going to bed, slipping into uh, the into to sleep, waking, and, and then having the 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 experience in the morning of the the answer to what that problem was, simply being rendered available to consciousness, ostensibly without any effort having occurred in the interim. The, the, the conscious mind did some of the, work, the preparatory work to examine the problem. Then the unconscious mind through, through the dreaming mind actually figured this answer out and, 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 and makes the answer available to you. Well, what we, what we know about the nature of traumatic experience is that the problem, so to speak, does not, does not get sorted out through going to bed and trying to sleep whether it's the veteran returning from Afghanistan or the uh, survivor of child abuse or sexual assault, the, the traumatic memory continues in these circular mental tape loops with this sense that the experience in some ways is still occurring. The feelings are all still just as vivid. The images, even the sounds, sometimes even the smells 
may still be horrifically available to the conscious mind as if no time in linear time has passed at all. Well, the, the entire project of the mental health and psychotherapeutic sciences has always has attempted to do really from the days of Sigmund Freud is then uh, facilitate other means of dreaming for the survivor. Uh, the, 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 the analytic method that Freud developed to free association was of the patient lying relaxed on the couch, bringing whatever thoughts uh, she or he um, had to mind in, in a fairly random fashion in the, in the calm and attentive presence of the, the analyst listener. And that through, through that process of free association in the, in the analytic consulting room, there was some sort of uh, integration of the confusing past experience that occurred. So my sense over, over many years of, of, of running these vast races is that something like that was in fact occurring for me in, in the run. The difference being rather than lying on an analyst's couch talking with a, with a therapist, I was moving on a trail and, and as it were, the, the trail was the, was the, the therapeutic space. The, the parallel, of course, is, is the capacity uh, for the mind to, to move freely, the dreaming mind, mind, mind to move freely while the thinking mind was relieved of its day-to-day tasks while I was running. And that in the aftermath of these very long runs, I would have a sense of some kind of integration of all of my traumatic memories having occurred. That and the experience I describe in the book is of this one, the longest run I ever did, 205 miles on the steep mountain trails, circumnavigating Lake Tahoe. So this is climbing a cumulative total of 40,000 feet, running virtually without a break for 96 hours. And the book describes how it, through the the waking dream of, of that odyssey, uh, I, I was ultimately able to come to terms with the confusing memories of the, the childhood part of myself, remembering what it was like to, to grow up with a, with a psychotic mother, that, that somehow all of this was integrated in the sort of voluntary surrender to a, to a, to a kind of dreamlike state that in itself became a kind of uh, quite almost quasi repetition of of that experience of living in close proximity to to psychosis. Al- although, rather than simply repeating that trauma, I was I was doing so choosing this run, and uh, in, in a beautiful place in the mountains, and with the company of uh, friends and loved ones and and guides who who could help me get to the end and and. <clears throat> And that, of course, is the difference, of course, between trauma itself and the the kind of therapeutic excavation of trauma in which perhaps one is returning to those memories, but one is returning to them within a safe container. This story reminds me so much about some of our our earlier interviews with, I'm sure folks you know, Bessel van der Kolk, but particularly, I think, in how we're beginning to understand things like psychedelic therapy more and more, or ways in which we can begin to access trauma from the unconscious, put it into the conscious mind, but suddenly 
be in a much different space, an open space, a loving space with it, and therefore to talk about this idea of integrating the past into the present. And in a miraculous way, it seems that you were able to do that by pushing yourself certainly quite hard, but through being at the limit in these ultra marathons. Do, do you think that that's a similar comparison? My sense is that there likely is neurophysiologically a significant overlap between the process that I described of the trance state of a very long ultramarathon facilitating a kind of reorganization of traumatic experience, that there's a close overlap, I suspect, between that process and what occurs in the process of psychedelic psychotherapy. The, the framework that makes sense of this most persuasively for me comes from the neuroscientist Robin Carhart-Harris, who talks about this concept he has of the entropic brain. So if you think, if you really boil the mind, the brain down to two processes, my framework for this in the book is we, we are each the marriage of these two beings, the reasoner and the dreamer. And the, 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 the dreamer is actually always with us. We are always dreaming to some extent. We're dreaming reality. The, the reasoner, rationality, is the, the prism uh, that we apply to the, the, the dream uh, that we experience as, as reality. In a state of trauma or depression or addiction, the, 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 the mind assumes this very rigid shape where there are certain ways of thinking and you know, certain neural pathways, the uh, network involved in particular, it's called the, the default mode network. It's the processes that support ordinary thinking, planning, remembering, mind wandering. What could become very problematic for those of us in states of severe depression or trauma is that, the, as it were, the, the reasoner, the waking consciousness, becomes absolutely stuck in, in, in the same cycle, the same rigid pathways. What becomes necessary therapeutically is to find ways of introducing uh, a certain degree of chaos to uh, unlock the, the rigidity that, it, that is holding the mind in this fixation on the... Uh, wounds or injuries or, 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 or trauma or grief of the past to create a, a, enough chaos, hence, hence Carhart Harris's idea of entropy. Entropy means disorder. Enough disorder so that some kind of reorganization is possible. So you, you certainly do hear in, in the first person reports of people who have had really profound, indeed permanent breakthroughs in psychedelic psychotherapy is that under the influence of the psychedelic agent, psilocybin in particular, to some extent MDMA, is that they have a kind of reckoning with the traumatic experience. You know, it might be an extremely intense visual encounter with an abuser, but the encounter is, is suffused with a, uh, a different feeling. And in, in, the, in the midst of this encounter, there is a capacity to shift to a different perspective on what occurred, which doesn't alter the narrative of what happened. It doesn't uh, 
that we're not talking about revisionist history, but it's about expanding the, the perspective. And you certainly hear that in the aftermath of these experiences under psychedelics, there is, there is a, there's a very different way that people relate to what they went through and, and, a, and a sense of liberation uh, from, from, from those experiences. My sense is that, that, that what, what I, certainly what I experienced through ultra running has a lot of parallels there and, and that there may be some fundamental processes about the nature of trauma recovery that remain to be uh, elucidated in, in, in scientific terms that, that, that uh, I suspect will, will yield some very important breakthroughs in, in, coming, in the coming years uh, about how, how, how people can move forward in the aftermath of, of trauma. Another I know really important part of your life has been going very deep into Zen meditation and in exploring that fully and understanding um, how, how that can be applied to, to the therapy room, to oneself, to transformation. Talk to me a little bit about, about that aspect of your journey. I had long had an interest in meditation back to the days when I was struggling with depression in my late 20s, early 30s. My experience of when I first attempted to meditate I imagine listeners, some listeners at least, maybe many listeners will be familiar with this, is that when I followed the, the standard uh, procedures and sat down and closed my eyes and tried to watch my breath or what have you, all I was aware of is just a million thoughts running in, in, in a, you know, a billion directions. And it, 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 the the practice yielded no no tangible relief whatsoever. In fact, it seemed to in, to intensify the, the 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 ways in which I was consumed with 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 thought. So, I, I was intrigued by meditation, but it never seemed to work for me. Uh, over time, what I what I came to after running for a while is an understanding that. I was meditating when I was running. If you are running and turning with each step and each breath towards what is occurring right then, that is a form of meditation. So I suppose that was the first insight, was that there was a, a direct crossover between many of the frameworks and practices that... Um, have been there in the history of the contemplative traditions right from the beginning. And what by, really by, by accident, I had, I had stumbled on in, in running. And of course, you see this in, in some meditative traditions. The, there is the, the Tiendai monks of um, Mount Hiai in Japan, the, the so-called marathon monks who approach, they're, they're not so much running, but they're sort of power hiking through the woods for actually years on end. And um, one of them at the end of this seven-year odyssey of running, they start running 20, years, 20 miles a day and they build up to 70 miles a day for, I think, seven years. And he was asked at the very end of this, you know, what was this all about? What was the, if you had to share one thing that you got from being in the woods all day for seven years, moving in this extremely, arg what seems like this extremely arduous way, what did you get out of it? And, and he said, 
you know, the, the, the fruit was gratitude for the teachings of the enlightened ones, gratitude for the wonders of nature, gratitude for the charity of human beings, and gratitude for the opportunity to practice. So that was also there for me, the, the, the experience of being in the woods or in the mountain, often with, with people who become close friends, moving, feeling healthy, feeling alive, feeling all my senses dialed up to 11 out of 10, maybe taking a break and eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and feeling like it was the most delicious thing I'd ever eaten. Often I would find myself actually in, in tears. And, and I kind of feel the emotion right now, actually. The, the, the feeling of, of the, the astonishing bliss of the opportunity to be alive in this body right now was, was, it was extremely powerful and precious. So I, I sense that that, that is the, the, was, the, was also significant then what, 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 what tended to arise in, in the midst of that bliss and gratitude was a, a sense of um, compassion and uh, wish to be of, of service to others, wish, wish for, for whatever other capacity I had in my uh, limited uh, span left on, on this earth to be, to be useful to, to other people. And so all of that in sum, the, you know, coming into the present feeling the the turning towards difficulty too, turning towards oh i I've, this is quite hard right now but this too is the truth of right now experiencing bliss and then experiencing the 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 desire to to be in service to others in a sense those are the insights that are i have learned now at this point are are the sort of core ones of the meditative Buddhist and, and, and especially Zen philosophy and practice. So they, they, they have been mutually reinforcing practice for me. While I'm sitting uh, now in Zazen, Zen meditation, which I do every day in the morning for about 50 minutes, I'm now aware of the benefits of, of running in the sitting still for 50 minutes is you know there's a way in which that is requires a certain degree of, in, of of physical endurance. Conversely, running now for me, uh, I, I embrace as a, a contemplative practice and and a, and a way of experiencing play and exploration and joy and feeling a degree of connection on the inside and 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 the capacity to connect with the world out, outside of me and, and, and others with the aim to cultivate a sense of, uh, of, our, uh, of our interdependence as, as humans embodied in a land in which we all share. That's where, the, where this path has taken me at this point. And as I said, the feeling in that is, is one of just the most immense gratitude. Well, Jam Thompson, I've... I've enjoyed all the the wild and beautiful threads of this conversation. I lastly, I I just wonder now, as we begin to close our time, how is it to just reflect back on on this journey for you and and where you are now versus where you've started? You know, Jonathan, I 
I've now been sober from a from drug and alcohol addiction for 15 years and in remission from depression for uh, something like the same period of time and in the aftermath of recovering from all these experiences for a really long time for many years my focus entirely was you know what I'm going to let these allow the past to be prologue and move forward in life and develop a functional and happy life as a father and husband and then clinician and scholar. And I did that for a really long time until I, until around 2016, when it occurred to me when I was in one day, I was back in, in interestingly, I'd come full circle. I was back in the same hospital I'd been briefly institutionalized in uh, 15 years prior, but now I was a, a therapist. And I had this uh, really wonderful aha moment where it struck me as, as really quite improbable that I had got there, that I, I was, st- and I had this sense of standing really sort of on a mountaintop and looking back at the, the steps that led up to me with this profound sense of gratitude. I, I was, this is amazing. I'm, I'm alive, I'm happy, and I'm able to be of service to others. Uh, that was part of it. The other sense was there is something about this path that, that I uh, found, others, uh, other uh, kind, caring, skillful people helped me along the way. There was something about this path that is remarkable. And, and I don't mean that in a self-aggrandizing way. Oh, I, I'm so special. I mean, the, the, the human phenomenon that a person can descend into that degree of pain and distress and nearly die and then find a path forward towards uh, life and uh, well-being that is an incredible thing my my hope with this with this book ultimately and with everything that i do professionally is that what what the book and and this conversation too i hope will contribute to is is a is the beginning of a reckoning with the 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 scale of the level of epidemic suffering in particular in relation to suicidality that that has has been with us since the dawn of time uh, and remains at epidemic proportions that in in my in my willingness to talk in this very direct way about quite challenging experiences that it will provide some measure of confidence or uh, courage in others to feel firstly i hope less alone in those experiences but also to i hope to stimulate a, a wider dialogue about how and why it is that in 2021 we have so many of our fellow human beings reaching the point where life has become unendurable and the decision they they take is is to, is to end their life why why are we still there why why are we still at the point where when I mean, you look at say, I don't know, the treatment historically of infectious diseases that we've eradicated. Why are we still at a point in the the third decade of the 21st century that major depression and trauma 
are at the levels that they are. What will it take collectively for us to develop the kinds of responses and the kinds of restorative environments to create the conditions for healing for, for all of us? That's, that's really what is on my mind at this point. J.M. Thompson is a clinical psychologist, ultra runner, and author of Running is a Kind of Dreaming, a memoir. Thank you for this conversation and spending this time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's been a real honor. Well, that's all the time we got for today. The producer of Life Examines is Andrea Brody. You can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll see you next week.